Um, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for your word, Lord. Lord, even as the word will be shared, Lord, we pray that you will renew our minds, Lord, and break down all strongholds, break down all our mindsets that we have that do not glorify you, Lord. We ask for the spirit of truth to come. We give thanks for the gift of illumination, Lord. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, can we turn to Matthew chapter 21? The title of my message today is The Entry of the King. Sounds like a lot of the Rings movie, all right? Um, we're going to read um, 14 verses as a start, okay? I think it's good that we start off our sermon with chunks of scripture. Um, so let's go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, all the way to 14. And it goes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey, a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples did and uh, went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the coat and put them, their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the, the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of, of robbers. And verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And what we have here is the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And the message today will be solely from these 14 verses. But let's pause for a while and go back one chapter to chapter uh, 20, verse 30. And uh, it says that Jesus and his disciples were on this road. And Matthew tells us that two blind men cried out to him and said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus came to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said, open our eyes. And Jesus healed them. And now when you read this, you might say, this is another one of Jesus' miracles, another healing. But you have to realize what this means for chapter 21 and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Because this is the first time that Jesus has been given the Messianic title by men and he allowed it to be said in public. When the blind man began to cry out, son of David, everybody knew what that meant. But who is the son of David? The son of David was the Messianic king who had been prophesied for centuries. The son of David was the ultimate king over Israel. For the first time, somebody cries out in public and calls him, you are the ultimate king. And Jesus looks at them and he did not deny the claim. And everybody is shocked. In particular, his disciples who have been so excited because from the very beginning, they had wanted Jesus to openly declare himself as king. They knew about his power. They saw what he could do. Now he does it. Now he said, yeah, I'm the king. And they are stunned, okay? They gaps. Because they know what this meant. 
This is a crisis for them. When Jesus publicly proclaims himself to be the Messiah, that means he now either has to triumph and take the kingship or he will be destroyed by the Roman authorities. And they thought that these were the only two options that Jesus has. So when the disciples heard the blind man say, Son of David, and Jesus says, Yes, that's me, they immediately thought, Oh dear, the hair at the back of their hands might have stood up in front. They might have been thrilled, yet terrified, because they knew that this was do or die. So the question is, what would the king do? And in that week, there was a question being discussed by everybody traveling up to Jerusalem. Will Jesus come to the feast? Will Jesus enter Jerusalem? There was excitement and trepidation. And right now, I want to give you a bit of context regarding the few verses that we have read. I want us to see why this was so important. Because to the crowds, it was a day of tremendous anticipation. Yes, they are excited about this entry, but they have missed the entire point. In Luke, we can read that Jesus even wept and lamented over Jerusalem because they have missed the point of his entry. Let's look at it first from the, view, the point of view of the crowds and the disciples. The people had waited a thousand years for this day. Fathers had passed the dream to their sons, and sons had passed the dream to the grandsons. They were all waiting for one thing to happen. What was the one thing? They were waiting for David's throne to be occupied again. A thousand years before this day, they had known a time of peace during David's reign. But soon after David died, um, because of his son Solomon's policies, there was severe war. The, the nation was split into two, never to unite again. From then on, they had a succession of kings, some of them good, some of them bad. After that, they began to be invaded by other powers. Assyria came, Babylon came, and they lost the land altogether for about 70 years. And some of them managed to come back and build a small temple on the site of the big one that Solomon had built. And they tried to maintain their way of life on that mount. And then more invaders came, the Egyptians and the Syrians. Then Alexander the Great brought the Greeks, and pretty soon the Roman Empire proved to be the lasting force. By the time Jesus began his ministry, the land was cut up to little bits and pieces. Herod and Pontius Pilate were governing the land. They were cruel leaders. And the Jews were hoping for their land to be restored again. Being an, in an enemy-occupied territory has bred collaborators, tax collectors, and even a resistance movement known as the Zealots. And acts of rebellion were taking place all over the land. So if we were to ask what was the real meaning of this triumphant march, one word, nationalism. It was a nationalistic demonstration. It was a group of people who were fed up with others ruling their country, and in their eyes, they have found the right leader. And what a king Jesus would be. Imagine having this king to rule over your land. He's a king who can um, um, perform miracles, heal the sick, a man who loves the common people, a man who can multiply food, hallelujah. Who wouldn't want that? A man who's wise and just and merciful, a man who can even raise the dead. Who wouldn't want that? And every single word they said and every act they did on that day was sheer nationalism. Because what exact word did they use? They said, Hosanna. And what does that mean? Because in modern Christian worship, Hosanna now means praise him, right? But the meaning was deeper at that time. It was deeper at that time. It's a Hebrew word meaning save us now, and it's an expression of impatience and urgency. 
It's saying, get us out of our troubles right now. Now is the time to fight. Now is the time to meet our enemies head on. Save us now. And look at what else they did. We think it's nice when we read the scripture. Wow, they took palm trees, palm leaves, and waved them around, lined them in the road in front of Jesus. And we think it's wonderful that they took off their garments and put them on the dust. But what did those actions mean? And the clue lies in their own history. They both have done these two different things on two separate different occasions. And they did, they did it once for a man named Jehu. I think Pastor Young preached about this months ago. And he was coming to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel off the throne. He came in as a resistance leader. He came to liberate the children of Israel from the domination of an evil royal family. They took off their garments and they put them on the road for Jehu. And Jehu rode a great pace in a chariot up that road. And they threw the garments in front of him and the chariot uh, wheels went over. It was a significant military action. This was, this was why they shouted Hosanna. And this was why they took off their clothes and put them in the dust. They even said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is from Psalms 118 verse 26. Every Jewish boy, when he was old enough to memorize, he will memorize Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. That's the great Halia. They were the Psalms of Essen that the people memorized and recited as they ascended the temple to worship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling on the son of David to save them, and they mean it in the physical, temporal sense from the occupying Roman army. And Psalms 118, by the way, was also known as a conqueror's psalm. And these very words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were the exact words that were sung and shouted in Jerusalem when they welcomed back Simon Maccabeus with palm branches who had just had a great victory at Accra and freed the nation Israel from Syrian domination just about 100 years before. And now they thought that Jesus was a military leader who would set them free and the same song was being sung. The people were bursting with excitement and pride. Imagine the disciples, right? Like, finally, this is so worth it. We left our fishing for this. This is what it's all about. And look at the multitudes looking at us. We are Jesus' disciples. We are so close to him. Finally, it's worth it. Finally, we've given up everything and we come to this place. But in Luke, it says that Jesus was weeping. Yes, they accepted him as king, but they were so, so mistaken. Jesus was not there to overthrow the kingdom and the power of Rome. He was there to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and restore man's relationship with the Father. And this was not how you gain freedom. And in the year AD 70, only 40 years after this happened, only 40 years after Palm Sunday, Jesus, whatever Jesus saw, whatever Jesus foretell, would happen. The zealots eventually rose against the Romans and the Roman army under Titus crushed the city and killed more than a million inhabitants. And during the siege, it got so bad that they were eating dung and they were even cooking their own children's bodies to eat. And Jesus saw that this was the kind of fight and the kingdom they wanted. It would lead them to destruction and disaster and he wept over them. The thing that they had not noticed, which Jesus had deliberately chosen, was the animal on which he wrote. Was the animal in which he wrote into the city of Jerusalem. And this was the tragedy of Palm Sunday. All their eyes were on him, but they did not see the animal in which he wrote. And that's the key to all. Because if you're coming as a military leader, you come in a horse, or even with a chariot as Jehu did, or even as what uh, Simon Maccabeus did. But Jesus came in riding on a donkey, and it's the one animal you do not use in battle. 
he came in on an, riding on an animal that doesn't represent war, but represented peace and meekness. So Jesus entered Jerusalem. And when Jesus got through, they expected him to turn right because at the corner of the temple area was a Roman garrison. But to their horror, when he came in, he turned left and he made for the temple. He did not even take one look at the Roman garrison. He went right into the place of worship. He looked into every cupboard and every back room. And in verse 12, we could see what Jesus did. Instead of chasing their enemy out, Jesus began to clean house. He disrupted their traditions. They thought that he was coming to deal with the Romans, but here he was dealing with their hearts. It was the most disappointing anticlimax. They were so disappointed that within days, they were shouting, crucify him. If you have once roused a nationalist mob and then you do not give them what they want, the same mob will turn around and go against you, which is precisely how the cross took place within the week. We, we, we now need to ask this question, that what's the significance of the cleansing of the temple? The Herodian temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge complex that was divided into four parts. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and the Holy of Holies. And the court of the Gentiles was the largest part of the temple complex. The design of the temple included this place for Gentiles to congregate because God had called Abraham, which is the patriarch of the Jewish people, to be a blessing to all nations. The people of Israel had a mission of proclaiming the truth of God, not just to themselves, not to just to their own people, but to the entire world, but to all people. The court of the Gentiles was on the outer edges of the temple, but the Gentiles were still allowed to be present so they might hear and fear the Lord. However, the Jews who hated the Gentiles decided and hoped that when the Messiah came, he would cleanse the temple of all the Gentiles and get rid of them once and for all. And acting on that disregard for the Gentiles, the Sahindran basically had turned the court of the Gentiles into a stockyard for commercial purposes. The sale of animals for sacrifice had become one of the most lucrative sources of uh, revenue for them. And for the celebration of Passover, the Jews streamed in into Jerusalem from all over the world, needing to buy sheep for the sacrifice. And the animals were sold for a premium because the people needed them and the exchange rates were crazy. The Jewish historian uh, Josephus recorded that in AD 66, as the Roman armies were coming against Jerusalem, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem during the Passover. Can you imagine the kind of business that's going on there? And it's a little wonder that Jesus took such drastic action, saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves? And Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, in saying that his house was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, including Gentiles. It was supposed to be a place of prayer, worship, and evangelism. But the whole purpose of God's temple had been distorted and dis corrupted. So our Lord, as the other gospel tells us, made a, a whip of cords, kicked over the tables, and drove the money changers and the animals out of the temple, cleansing it. The Jews hoped that the Messiah would cleanse the temple of Gentiles, but Jesus cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. Instead of getting what they wanted, their hearts and their motives were exposed. No wonder the same crowd called out for Jesus' death days later. It was popularly believed 
that when the Messiah showed up, he will purge the temple of foreigners. But now Jesus is being an advocate for them. But Rome was not the issue. Our Lord was not concerned with uh, people's relation to Rome. He's concerned with their relationship with the Father. That's his focus. And I want to say to you that Jesus was so focused in what the Father had told him to do. He was so focused in doing the will of the Father. And I submit to you that he's seen lots of things in a year's ministry. He has seen social injustice. He has seen oppression by the enemy, oppression by the Romans. He has seen a lot of brokenness by enemy forces, but his mission never changes. He was focused on revealing the Father and was concerned with how people worship and whether they obeyed what his Father had commanded. And Jesus stepped in and he dismantled their worldview because they had presumption, they had disobedience, and they had distractions. Presumption, what do I mean by this? They thought that the Gentiles do not deserve to hear the good news. Distractions because they were distracted with the original call to be a house of prayer for all nations. And we as a church right now, we have been praying for revival. Yes, we are excited about the entry of the king. We want him to come. But I want to say to you that he will come on his terms, not ours. So the question is, when the king comes, what will he find? Will the king be pleased with what he sees? And since our inception, Cornerstone, this house, has called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Amen? A place for evangelism. One of our core values as seen on our webpage is that lost people matter to God and therefore ought to matter to the church. Amen? We need to be reminded over and over again. And also a place where people can receive healing. This is who we are as a church. We must not detract from what God has called us to do. I want to show you something else here. What's interesting is while Jesus was angry and while he was cleansing the temple, we would think that he was scared of people, right? Wow, better not approach this man. Ah. He's so angry. But verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So fascinating. Even with all the ruckus and the mess and the overturning of the tables, the sick saw Jesus. They, they saw his wrath, they saw his anger, yet they knew that he would not turn them away. They saw divine anger, yet they also saw divine compassion. And Jesus healed them all. And uh, I, I was just sharing this particular portion with Pastor Yang, uh, I think about two weeks back, and he gave me his explanation, a different in interpretation about this, and I was like, wow, it's so good, okay. Because in 2 Kings chapter 5, the first time when David wanted to take Jerusalem, the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Even the blind and lame can resist you, okay? And they thought, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. And in verse 8, some translation says that David said, from now on, the blind and the lame will not enter the city. They will not come into this house. And uh, with all his strengths, David had this weakness, this biasness. And this biasness continued. And Jesus came and he reversed their tradition, reversed their biasness and their worldview, and he welcomed and healed the blind and the lame. Amazing. He came in just with one act dismantled all their worldviews, their presumptions and their distractions. And I, I just want to say that we must not be presumptuous. How do we do that? With all the brokenness of the world, it's so easy to be carried off with all, all the other uh, mindsets and all the other motivations. But how do we do that? How do we get so focused? The answer is we must always draw near to discern his heart. And I want to highlight one character now, and it is Mary, the sister. 
the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Pasang shared this during second service and I was like, oh wow, so good. Because it was exactly what I wanted to share. And one thing you, know, you need to know about Mary, this is very significant, that Mary drew near and discerned Jesus' heart. And we'll very quickly jump to Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. And this incident happened after the Mary and Martha's incident. After Lazarus died and was resurrected, Jesus came to Simon's house in Bethany for a meal, and Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. Do you all remember this story? It's one of the most famous stories in our Christian culture, right? And the people saw it, they, they say, why is she doing this? Why is she spending all that money? Is that true ministry? What a waste. But Jesus says an incredible thing. He, he turns and says, do not bother her. And in verse 12, he says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. What he's saying is Mary knew that he was going to die. Do you know what that means? At that point, Mary was the only person in the entire Gospels who understood and accepted it. She understood and remembered what Jesus said. If you read the four Gospels, Jesus, you can see that Jesus continually told the disciples that he was going to die but they didn't get it. Either they heard it, but they could not comprehend it. They could not accept it. After his death, they still didn't get it because they were hiding in the room. And Jesus said, Mary alone in the world knew that I was going to die. How come? And in Luke 10, we have the famous story of Mary and Martha. And we know this story. And the scripture says that at that day in Martha's house, while Martha was cooking, Mary drew near. She sat at his feet and she listened. And not only was listening to the Lord's word, but doing something that was remarkable. If I can even use this word, it was a bit controversial and scandalous at that point. For a woman at that time, she was seated at his feet. The rabbis didn't allow that. Culture didn't allow that. A woman could learn in the back or in the woman's section, but to come up to the front to sit at Jesus' feet, she was as close as she could get. She was so fixated and focused to the most powerful and truthful teacher who ever spoke. And because of this act of devotion, Jesus revealed his heart. He revealed the secrets of his coming. And I don't know how long the sharing was, but that one-to-one -one exchange might have been amazing. And Jesus revealed what was going to happen to him. She listened to it and she submitted to it wholeheartedly. Even the disciples had their own worldview. They ran his entire teaching through their worldview and they didn't truly listen. That's why when Jesus entered Jerusalem, they too thought that Jesus would turn right and drive the Romans out. But after Mary anoints his feet, Jesus says, to the end of time, what she has done will not be forgotten. And that's true greatness. Why? Because she chose to draw near. She chose to listen to him. She took the word of God and she didn't just spend time studying it, but she wholeheartedly submitted to it intellectually and emotionally with every fiber of her being. And the cause of the, of the ointment didn't matter to her. She knew that his death was coming and she might not have a chance then and she was prepared for it and the cause did not matter at all. And I want to say one more thing. There's a difference between Judas and Mary. Like you are asking, why Pastor Elijah suddenly mentioned Judas? Because the scripture says immediately after this act in verse 14, Judas determined in his heart to betray the Lord. After this entire act, Judas determined in his heart to betray the Lord. He could not understand why Jesus would accept this offering. And I believe the happenings of the entire week confused and troubled him. Jesus did not fit into his worldview. He thought that Jesus would be king and destroy the Romans. But now Jesus cleansed the temple. 
he make enemies of the Jewish leaders. He's like, what on earth is happening? And he starts talking about his death and burial. And Jesus would even let this woman lavish this expensive gift on him. Jesus did not fit into his frame and he could not accept this Jesus that entered into Jerusalem. And the difference between Judas and Mary is this, that Mary drew near to Christ because she loved him and Judas drew near because Christ was useful. Mary did not need anything from Jesus. Why? Lazarus had just been resurrected. She, she did not need a healing. She didn't need anything. She drew near because she just wanted to see his face. And Christ saw it. He was pleased and he revealed what was going to happen to him. And I read this a few years, a few years, a few weeks ago in uh, Pastor Andrew's Facebook. And Pastor Young just mentioned to it uh, again in his sermon. And it's a quote by Catherine Kuhlman. And she said this, which really spoke to me. And I sent this quote to all my cell leaders and my ministry leaders. I told them, I really don't really know how to practice it yet, but I'm so provoked and convicted and let's just take heed of it. And she said, I pray all the time because if I limited the Holy Spirit to a certain number of hours a day, I would, I would be in danger of using Him for my own purposes. If, for that instance, I spend one hour a day in prayer, I will expect the Holy Spirit to, remote, to reward me for that hour. I will begin to feel that uh, it was that hour of prayer that caused the anointing in a meeting. No, I cannot use the Holy Spirit in that way. I must practice His presence all of the time. And sometimes we are guilty of this. Like we pray so hard because we want Him to help us in our meeting, in our project, just for that particular portion of the day. But, but Jesus said, practice the presence of God. Always. Amen. The king will enter our homes and our cell groups, our lives, and he will clean house. And before revival comes, the king, uh, the king of kings will shake and disrupt things and he will expose and cleanse our hearts. He will bring the light, but let him come. Let him come. Let the fear of the Lord come and rule in our hearts because the king will break down all presumptions and worldview and expose all disobedience because the bride is important to him, the church matters. And when Jesus started his ministry, he started it at the temple at age 12. And he said to his parents, don't you know I have to be at my father's house? Don't you know I have to do my father's will? And, and when he ended it, almost at the end, he ended it at the temple because Jesus has always been consumed with doing the will of the father. And his desire is for this house constant to always to delight to do the will of the Father. And throughout Matthew 21, there's a central theme where the king finds what he's looking for. And why do I say this? Because in Matthew 21, verse 19, after cleansing the temple, it says, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, Jesus went to it and found nothing but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree weeded at once. And throughout this entire chapter, we can see that our Lord has always been looking. He went to the temple. He found that there were disobedience. He expected to find fruits on a fig tree and there was nothing. The question is, will the king be pleased with what he finds when he enters into our homes, into our hearts, into our church? And Cornerstone, we have a unique call and we must continue to walk in our God-given mandate to be a missions-focused church and to make disciples of all nations. Amen? And I know I might offend some people when I say this, but don't be distracted by what's happening. Don't be divided by the vaccines or what we read on the internet. Some of you, perhaps you're fighting the wrong battle. 
you see the brokenness of the world, you think, you watch a few clips and you think, oh, this is what we must do right now. This is the direction of the church. This is what we must do right now. And, and, and Jesus is entering in and he's rearranging the furniture in our lives, in our hearts. But Jesus was so focused. Yes, there's brokenness and a great need in the nation. Yes, we need to be aware. We cannot be ignorant, but we need to do what we are called to do. I want to share something very, very personal. I'm glad it's this service. It's not live stream. <laughs> but uh, 2020, I was 20. Last year, I was so consumed with the US presidential election, okay? I was so consumed. Um, my close friends and uh, my, 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 my cell members can attest to this, okay? Even my wife, I would spend hours watching and reading and I was so impacted, okay? I, I saw the brokenness of what's happening in the nation. I was so consumed. I was so consumed. And I would sleep until 1 a.m. I will read. And not only that, okay, I, I, I don't just read, but I get very vocal. I go to Twitter. I whack, 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 whack. I whack AOC after. I whack, whack, whack. And Facebook, I debate, I debate, I debate. And I thought that this was what God has called me to do. It came to a point, there was one day, Pastor Wiling uh, uh, called me, if I'm not wrong, or she emailed me, she called me. And she said, that this particular person that really needs a male pastor to walk him through something, can you do it? I, I almost replied, I'm too busy. Sorry, I can't. Can you get someone else? And the Holy Spirit dropped me a note so strongly. He said, what on earth are you doing? You researched so much on this. You spend hours debating people online. And when was the last time you stopped, you leaned in and discerned my heart? When was the last time you have come into my presence to discern what is my will for this period? You have forsaken the most important thing because that's the most important thing to me. And the second thing he asked, when was the last time you spoke to someone about me? And third, when was the last time you healed the sick? And I was like, oh, Lord, none, none. <laughs> I felt I failed the test, but God in His grace and His mercy gave me another chance. And I want to say that to build a house of prayer, we need ourselves to be houses of prayer, amen? We need to be houses of prayer in our own lives. And there's only one thing that's necessary. One of the key products of revival is the harvest. That's true. We're talking about the end time harvest. We will, we will pray about it. We will wait for it. We, we, are, we are so excited about it. But in the meantime, are we so winners ourselves? Yes, we are not called to be evangelists, not all of us, but we are called to do the work of an evangelist. And I come to a place in, in my life that I just want to know his heart because there's so much confusion in the world, so many needs. And sometimes in my mind, I think that the only way out, the only way that Jesus can cleanse and everything for Jesus to turn right and drive the enemy out. But I've not discerned his heart. I didn't know what he came to do. And at the end of the day, I feel that one of the themes for my life for next year is to watch and pray and to prepare. And it's only possible when we draw in to hear his heart. I just want to know his heart. I just want to know his heart for the Lord. Can we get the worship team to come up? I just want to be the reason why broken people will once again believe in the goodness of God. Because they see my life. And let's not be distracted. Let us be focused and do what he has called us to do. We will be a house of prayer for all nations. We will always be a place where broken people can experience the touch of God and we will always heal the sick. Amen. Can we rise off it? One of the main questions now is when the King comes, when He enters our hearts and our cell groups, our families, 
will he be pleased with what he find? When he look up, will he find fruits? When he go to the temple, will he find, are they obedient to what they have caught, they have been asked to do? Can you just lift up our hands? I just feel this great burden of the Lord. Lord, we come before you, Lord. We humble our hearts. Lord, we need to be ready. But Lord, one of the most important things, one of the most important things is to draw near and to discern your heart. Lord, we want to be obedient with all that you have called us to do. Lord, Lord we don't just want to do your will. But Lord, we come to a place of maturity that we will delight to do your will. Because we see that you are worthy. We don't draw near because you're useful. We don't draw near because of the good gifts that you can give us. We don't draw near because of what you can do for us and our family. We draw near because we see you in your glory and we will lift our hands and we worship you. We want to draw near to hear your heart. You know, just before I became a pastor, um, I was in Pastor Daphne's office and she was sharing a lot of things, um, sharing her heart. But one of the most significant things that she said to me that I will always remember, she said, Elijah, before you're a minister unto people, remember you're first a minister unto the Lord. And Lord, we lift our hands, Lord. That's what you have called us to do, to draw near to you and minister unto you. Lord, Lord we pray that we will have power and personal encounters with you. For uh, uh, any of us, if we are distracted, if we have not obeyed what you've called us to do, Lord, align us back by your grace and your mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray your blessings upon this congregation, the blessings of God the Father, the strength and grace of Christ the Son, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit shall be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's give God a praise offering. Amen. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.